Oh. Thanks, Mary. I don't know, Chuck. <laughs> yes, Chuck, please. Hymn sings, song sings, they're a lot of fun that we get to join our voices. Yeah. I'll think about it, Chuck. Okay. We're in 1 Corinthians today, starting on a long trek through that book written by Paul. 1 Corinthians is in the New Testament. It's right after the letter Paul wrote to the Romans. It's right before the second letter Paul wrote to, second, to Corinthians. So if you're reading along in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and the words seem completely wrong, it could be you're in 2 Corinthians, not in 1 Corinthians. As you're tur- turning to there, many of you who are older than I am, which is most of you, <laughs> sorry, um, You look at this world, you look at society, you look at the town, you look at people around you and you say, what on earth happened? A lot of you look at everything and you say, wait a minute, no, that's not how things were like when I was a kid. What's going on? As one person said, Mayberry isn't Mayberry anymore. It's not. I'd hate to see that show today. We could look at our town and ask that. We can see the alcoholism around us. We can see the drug use even within the walls of our school here in town. We see a new shop on Main Street called the Neely Vapor Shop. We see broken families. We see abuse. We see neglect. We can look at the churches in the county. And we can look at the things that they celebrate or don't celebrate. We can look at immorality as being preached as normal. Who waits for marriage anymore? The things that People would never flaunt back in the day or flaunted or considered normal now. We could talk about the beliefs, not necessarily the people who sit in the pews, but of the, of the hierarchy of the churches here in Neely. Methodist Church, which was the foundation of the gospel truth 100 years ago, the church as a whole is about to split over the homosexual issue. What is going on? Most of the denominations that are in our county Most of them, if you look on their websites, do not believe in salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. They do not believe that the Bible is the word of God, complete without error. There is a pastor in our town that went on a public forum and said that the Bible is a bunch of stories. That's all it is. We can ask what is going on. And it's easy to look outside and say what is going on out there. And kind of put ourselves up and say, oh, but that, we're Calvary Bible Church. We're, we're the town, we're the, not the town, we're the church that's on a hill. And we're, we're removed from all of that. We're better than all of that. But we can look at the history of our church. We can look at the splits, the squabbles, the fights, the pride. We could look at ourselves and admit that we are not perfect. Just like everyone else is not perfect. And as I look at our church And as I look at the churches around us and I look at society in general, the phrase that goes around and around my mind is history repeats itself. Because the church in America needs the message of 1 Corinthians now more than ever before. What the Corinthian church struggled with 
or should have struggled with but didn't, and they said, hey, it's fine, we'll do it, is exactly what the church in America and the society of America is running toward what we're facing in or even dabbling in today. Before we dive into the passage, we're going to study today of 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 to 3. Uh, we need to lay some background to 1 Corinthians so we can apply it correctly. And since we spent all of last year, every month, studying a new book, we know the questions to ask. You're going to get lazy because we're going to stay in one book for a whole year. We're, you're going to forget what questions to ask. when you, no, no, you're not. So what questions do you ask when you come to a book of the Bible? What questions do you need answered? The author. The author. The who. What else? When? When? Where it's at? And then what? What is the theme, the message of the book? Who, when, what? Before we dive in, would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you are all that we need. Through all of life, you are all that we need. You are the one who strengthens and guides through our lonely times, you are there. Through our busy times, you are there. Through our times when we are hurting, you are there. And every single moment, you teach us to depend on you, which makes all those moments worth it all. Lord, thank you for your truth that we can seize upon and hold on to. Lord, today, as we study your truth in 1 Corinthians, I ask that we would understand it and that we would seize on it and follow you in it. Open up the heart and the mind that we might understand and that we might be compelled to follow. And as I am up here, Lord, I ask that I would decrease and that you would increase. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Thanks, Father. Amen. Who? Well, the letter was written by Paul, which we can see in verse 1. He says, Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sothenes to the church of God in Corinth. It was written by Paul. He uh, claims to be an apostle. He was not one of the 12 apostles that followed Jesus when Jesus was alive. At that time, Paul was a Pharisee, and he was actively opposed to Jesus, or at least Jesus' ways. After Jesus went to heaven, Paul traveled around Israel and the greater area, uh, searching out Christians, imprisoning them. Some of them he even influenced their murder. He thought he was doing a service for God because he was a devout Jew. And these people were standing against the ways of God, therefore a devout Jew should stand away against them. But he was a horrible person for what he was doing. God did not like it. Christians would have considered him kind of how we consider uh, extremist Muslims, people who were standing up for their faith and killing Christians because they thought it would earn them some way, some pleasure from God. One day, Paul traveled to Damascus to terrorize the Christians there. And I use that word specifically, to terrorize the Christians there. And on the way, many of us know the story, light from heaven came, blinded him, and Jesus appeared to Paul there, convinced Paul of the truths of the gospel, and Paul repented, trusted in Jesus for his salvation, was gloriously saved. And then after years of learning about Christianity, both alone with other Christians, he began to travel around the Roman Empire as an evangelist, wanting to tell people the truth that he found, 
that God was a God of grace and he was extending to that grace to anyone who would turn to him in faith. On his second trip around the Roman Empire, the known world at that time, he came to Corinth. While he was at Corinth, he met two people by the name of Priscilla and Aquila. Titus and Silas joined them there. There was a whole, he wasn't there just by himself. He was there with at least four other Christians, going around the town, preaching the gospel, starting a church. He stayed there for a year and a half, and then he left and moved on to Ephesus. While he was in Ephesus, him, Priscilla and Aquila met a guy by the name of Paulos. Apollos came to faith, studied, and then went back to Corinth to be a pastor there. His name's going to pop up later on in the book of Corinthians. Corinth was a hard mission field. In the Old Testament, when Ahab was king of Israel, the city of Corinth rivaled, uh, rivaled Athens as the most wealthy city in the area and the most influential. All of us know Athens for some reason, we don't know Corinth, but they were equal in status at that time. People flocked to Corinth because of the wealth that was there, but they also flocked there because of the temples to Apollos and Aphrodite. The ruins of the temple of Apollos can still be seen today. In fact, when you think of ruins in Greek time, you normally either think of... Uh, uh, the name escapes me, but there's a famous ruin you think of, or you think of the temple in Corinth of Apollos. One of those two pops in your mind. You may not think it's the temple of Apollos, but that's what you're thinking of. During this time of prosperity, this town was known as Sin City, literally. The temple of Aphrodite, she was the fertility goddess. It employed 1,000 prostitutes at that time. Immorality was so ingrained in what people thought of Corinth that Greek literature began to create phrases about that. A guy by the name of Plato, it wasn't what children play with, Plato, but the author, Plato, he wrote and he talked about Corinthian girls. He, when he referred to a Corinthian girl, it was a prostitute from anywhere. It might have been a prostitute from Rome, prostitute from Jerusalem, but he always called them Corinthian girls because that's what was known in Corinth. Another uh, playwright coined the phrase doing Corinth for someone who was committing fornication. They were doing Corinth. It was not a nice place to live. That life came to abrupt halt in 146 BC, 150 years before Christ. Rome came to conquer Corinth. They destroyed the town, completely obliterated it. They killed everyone or sold the rest into slavery, and it lay empty for decades. 100 years after its obliteration, Julius Caesar rebuilt the town. And he rebuilt it with freed slaves, soldiers, and urban laborers. Not the nicest people to be around either. It was pro on a prominent trade route, so it quickly grew. Sorry, I like history, so this is the boring part of the time. And people from all over the Roman Empire moved there. It became the capital of the province of Achaia. So if you read through Acts and you learn about the province of Achaia, the Corinth was the capital of that. People from all over the Roman Empire came and moved there. And since people from all over the Roman Empire moved there, it became a place of cultural and religious pluralism. Everyone went there, therefore everything was okay there. We don't have any, uh, any evidence of the temples of Apollos or Aphrodite being rebuilt at this time, but we do have evidence for shrines of Aphrodite being scattered throughout the city of Corinth. So in the Old Testament, when Corinth was huge, there was the temple to Aphrodite and the prostitutes were at the temple. Now in Paul's day, 
the shrines were scattered throughout the city, so all the prostitutes were scattered throughout the city to take place in the worship of Aphrodite there. The Corinth of Paul's day was basically, if you want to picture it, was a mixture of New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas, all rolled into one. Picture it? That's where Paul lived for a year and a half. And that's where he wrote several letters to. It wasn't a nice place to live. So that's the who. Paul wrote it to the church in Corinth. When? Paul first visited Corinth in AD 51, about 18 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, about 15 years before his own death. He stayed there for a year and a half, then he left. In AD 54, he wrote a letter to the Corinthians. We have no idea what was in the letter. We only know he wrote the letter because he mentions it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He was bringing some things to the Corinthians' notice, the Christians there telling them, hey, the ways you're living isn't quite right. You're reflecting the culture, not Christ. And the Corinthians didn't like the letter. They took offense at it. So they wrote him a letter back. We don't know what that letter said. All we know is that it contained questions about Christian living, church life, and strong accusations about Paul's authority and his apostleship. They basically said, who are you to tell us what we are to do and to not to do? It's like the younger brother when his older sibling's trying to babysit him. I may have some influence, some experience on that. So Paul writes this letter, 1 Corinthians, back to them, this letter that we're going to study. It's an answer to the letter the Corinthians wrote. After this letter, he visits Corinth two more times and writes them at least one more letter. There you go. Now we have the who, the when, the what. Don't go to sleep yet. In this letter, we have a bunch of themes. Paul defends his apostleship. He urges the Corinthians to embrace the values of the cross. He touches on issues of purity. He talks about loving God and others. He talks about church worship practices. He defends bodily resurrection. He covers the gamut in this letter. But one phrase might be helpful to know if you boil down the theme to one phrase. Have any of you ever seen the movie Ratatouille? Jacoby, thank you for that profound yes. Good. A couple people seen Ratatouille. Very cute movie. If you are a food service professional, it is a horrible movie because it's about a rat who is cooking. Yeah. It's a horrible movie. Horrible. But there is a phrase that is repeated over and over and over and over in that movie. Anyone want to give a stab at what that phrase is? I heard it over here. Anyone can cook. It's over and over in the movie. And that's, that's kind of the theme. It comes that anyone can cook. So to borrow from Ratatouille, if you would allow me, the theme of 1 Corinthians is that anyone can be sanctified. Anyone can be sanctified. No matter how messed up we are, no matter how messed up that other person is who we will not name, sanctification can be pursued. God can reach into anyone's life and take the brokenness, the mistakes, the messed upness and change that person to be a reflection of his image where his glory shines through. Anyone can be sanctified. And the truth is, if the Corinthian church can be changed, we can be. So let's dive into the passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. 1 Corinthians 1, 1 to 3. 
Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to our brother Sosthenes, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul starts his letter with a simple introduction. His English teacher in elementary school would be very proud because he takes the, the, the normal format of letters of that time, from this guy to that guy. It's like me when I was six years old being forced to write letters to my grandparents. I would sit there and agonize. And then I would say, dear grandma and grandpa sample, how are you? I am fine. And then I'd write two more letters, fold it up, stick a stamp, send it on its way and go and play. It's great. I followed the form. I did what I was supposed to do. Paul, though, builds on what he's supposed to do. He puts some important truths into his introduction. It's not just, hi, this is me and that's you, we're good. He moves into the question, who are we as the church? Who are we as the church? The question provides the basis for everything else in this letter. If the Corinthians do not understand who they are as a church, they will not take what Paul says for them to take. They will not change as Paul wants them to change. They have to grasp who they are as a church. You see, our practice is supposed to line up with who we are. If you're in a football team, when you play football, you play football according to the rules of football. Isn't that correct, Jacoby? You don't play it according to the rules of track. You don't play it according to the rules of basketball. And heavens know, do you swap them and play basketball according to the rules of football? It doesn't work. If you're on a team, you play according to the rules of that team. If someone stays in the sample household, may heaven have mercy, they must follow the rules of the sample household. You follow the rules of who you belong to. If someone calls himself a follower of Jesus Christ, they're supposed to live according to that truth. Our practice is supposed to line up with who we are. So Paul brings to the Corinthians this letter and he says, this is who we are. Who are we as the church? Some of the answers to that question that we're going to study today are very simple, but they're important to keep in mind if we are to live as Christ wants us to live. There are six answers to who are we as the church. First, we are a localized group. We are a localized group. We are a group that meets in one specific location. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. While this letter has been used by churches for the past 2,000 years around the globe, of what it means to be a church, what it means to follow Jesus with a life that reflects him, it was meant to a specific church in a specific place. Paul as a missionary interacted with specific churches. When he went on his missionary journey, he would start a church in every single town that he went to. He never went to a church and said, hey, guess what? I just started a church over in Corinth. You all need to pack up your bags and drive 45 minutes over to that church. He started a church in each area so that every area had a place where people would worship God together in the community. They met to perform baptisms and take communion. They encouraged one another in their sanctification. A church in a specific community. They went and traveled to other communities to worship. They worshiped right there. God designed the church to be a localized group, a covenant community where we know each other, a group built on truth to teach truth, to edify each other, to encourage each other in the fulfillment of the Great Commission and to restore each other when we sin. Not to belabor the point, but I'm going to belabor the point. This was not a church in Athens. This was not a church in Jerusalem. This was not the church at Rome. This was a church in Corinth. Okay, 
Can I get in one small little soapbox? Is that okay? Okay, one small little. We have an interesting phenomenon in the American church with the rise of the mega church. I have no problem with large churches. I'm not up here to say large churches are evil, but you notice that I'm a pastor in a small church. Okay? Okay, good. The large church in America, God, God uses it for a specific reason. They can do things small churches can't do. Small churches can do things large churches can't do. But people, especially in, in larger cities, have gotten used to traveling a large distance to attend a church all the way over there and drive by all these other small churches along the way. It, it's getting to be the such that there are churches in small communities that are closing because everyone is going to the big city to attend church. And the light for the gospel is being snuffed out there. Like I said, I have no problem with large churches, but something's wrong when smaller churches are closing to feed the large church. Now, I have no problem either with people who drive a long distance because there's no good church in their community. There might be churches there, but they're not churches that preach the Bible. Unfortunately, those are dime a dozen here in Nebraska, which is why I'm here, here in Nebraska, to help the small church grow and thrive. There's actually a larger church in the northeast Nebraska area which has started talking. Now, I need to word this correctly. I'm not leaving, okay? I need it just because I, I was about to say, I was like, oh, people might just get, oh, the, no, don't want any heart attacks to happen. Okay, there's a church in the northeast Nebraska area that started to talk to me on how they can take their members and send them back to start churches in the small communities that they're coming from splintering their congregation and going back down to a small church because they want the light of the gospel in those small communities where there isn't any. I'm so excited about that church, of what it's doing. And more churches need to do that. The church is a localized group. Secondly, not only is the church a localized group, but the church is a localized group of those who are saved. Of those who are saved. Paul says in verse 2, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now this term he talks about, sanctified in Christ Jesus, it means to be set apart. This, this, the word does not have to do immediately what God does when he changes us to be like him. The process of sanctification, where we are changed to be like Christ. This has to do with salvation, being set apart when we make the decision to trust Jesus for our salvation, turning from our sin and trust, laying everything at Jesus, saying, I trust in you alone for my salvation, God sets us apart. We are his. He gives us his jersey and says, you're on my team. Now live like it. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 2.9. 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful life. Those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we have been through radical change. We've been through a new birth where we are different than what we were. We are gods on his team, reflectors of him. If someone has not been saved, if they've not been set apart, sanctified in Christ Jesus, never trusted him for salvation, they are not on God's team. Therefore, they are not on, in the church. They cannot be. We as Calvary Bible Church or any church, we welcome people to come and attend 
who have never placed their faith in Jesus Christ and we hope by attending that they see how amazing God is and they will turn to him in faith. But until they do, they are not part of the church. They cannot be because they're not on God's team yet. The church is a localized group of those who have been saved. Third, the church is a localized group of those who have been saved and called to be holy and called to be holy. You can see uh, in that verse that you're going to have memorized by the end of this morning. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. When we're set apart in Christ Jesus, we're set apart for a purpose, and that purpose is that we are to be holy even as God is holy. Tim Keller says it this way, God sees us as we are, loves us as we are, and accepts us as we are. But by his grace, he does not leave us where we are. He calls us to change. Paul writes this way in Romans chapter 6, verses 12 to 13. Romans 6, 12 to 13. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. We're called to leave behind our life that is so displeasing to God. We're called to leave behind our priorities and our desires. We're called to take up our cross daily and follow him. We're called to be an image of God. When someone places their faith in Jesus Christ, you know, the Bible talks about it as being born again. And, and you can almost picture them. We, we have the phrase as babies in Christ. We know what a baby is like, correct? Yeah? Okay. We know what a baby does. And we look at them and say, oh, it's okay, it's just a baby. But then what if that baby does what it is doing in 20 years? Would we say that's okay? No. In the same way, when someone places their faith in Jesus Christ, they're called to change, to grow and mature in their faith, act differently in a way that reflects God. And if they, after 20 years of their faith, is living like they did 20 years before, something's wrong. God says we are to be holy even as he is holy. That's why we meet together every week. The author of Hebrews writes this in Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meetings together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. We are to meet so that we can help each other in our holiness. Those who do not meet together regularly, and by regularly I'm going to say about twice a month, tend to get stunted in their holiness. You can see them, the stunting. You can, you can point them out, the ones that regularly tend and those that don't. Now, to those who are watching online, I understand there are times when you cannot come. There are some people who cannot come and they're stuck at home. And that's why I'm so grateful for live stream, that they can take part in some way. But it's not the same as being together. When we're together, God works in us, in our sanctification and our holiness. The church is a localized group who have been sanctified and called to be holy. Now, are you ready for number four? Do we need a coffee break? Anyone need to jump up and down? Be quiet, PC. Anyone need to jump and down? Jumping jacks, anything like that? Okay. Not only is the church a localized group who has been saved and called to be holy, 
but the church is part of a larger group. It's part of a larger group. He writes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who have called on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is called the universal church. We're a part of a family that contains everyone who has placed their faith in Christ from when Jesus died and rose again to when he comes. From people all over the world, we are part of that church. Paul wrote to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 21. Ephesians 2, 19 to 21, he says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. The church, part of a larger groups scattered throughout the nations, throughout the centuries. But one day, we will come together in one voice and we'll glorify God and worship him. And John writes about this in Revelation chapter 5, verses 13 to 14. Revelation 5, 13 to 14. He says, Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, to him who uh, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever, four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. We're part of a larger group. We cannot exist alone. Us against the world. In fact, once we start going out and helping and partnering with other Christians, we start becoming more Christ-like. It's one thing we're going to be talking about in the semi-annual congregational meeting, how we can, being such a great tight-knit family in unity, how we can then go out and bring that love to our community and show people around us who the church is. The church is part of a larger group. Fifth, we are part of a larger group defined as those who worship God. Part of a larger group defined as those who worship God. Anyone want to quote verse 2 to me? No? Okay. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. The phrase, call on the name of the Lord, is a very prominent phrase throughout Scripture. In the Old Testament, it was used to find those who are worshipers of the one true God. We see it pop up in Genesis chapter 4, verse 26. Genesis 4, 26. Seth had a son, he named him Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. In Psalms, it speaks of those who are not worshipers of God as those who do not call on the name of the Lord. In the New Testament, that phrase morphed from someone who is a worshiper of the one true God to someone who is a follower of Jesus Christ, who, the person who has placed their trust specifically in Jesus for their salvation. Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verse 21, Acts 2, 21, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This, it's, a, it's a phrase of trust, speaking of our need for him, not just for salvation, but for all of life. We are those who confess that Jesus is our God, our all in all, that he is everything to us, everything. If someone walks through these doors and does not know that we are worshipers of God alone, something is wrong. If someone interacts with us in our home or in the community and does not know that we are worshipers of the one true God, something is wrong. Because that's who we are. And everyone should know it. If God is our all, if Jesus is everything to us, 
if we are someone that calls on the name of the Lord. And just with the local church, if someone is not a worshiper of the one true God, saved by the grace of Christ alone, they are not part of us and we are not part of them. It cannot be. We are part of a larger group defined by those who worship God. So where have we been? Who are we as the church? We are a localized group who have been sanctified and called to be holy. We are part of a larger group defined by those who worship God. And the final answer to that question of who are we as the church is that we are bearers of grace and peace. We are bearers of grace and peace. Verse three says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As we are dependent on God, he gives within us, he produces in us grace and peace. What does that mean? Well, it speaks to our relationship first with God and then with each other. In Christ, we have grace from God, unmerited favor. In spite of our sin, he looks down at us and he gives us salvation. He gives us all other blessings. It's his grace. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. Peace means that we are reconciled with him. We have a personal relationship with the creator of the universe, which is an amazing thought. God gives us grace and peace. Well, if we have that state with God through Jesus Christ, that means we can have that state with each other. We, through the promptings of our brothers and sisters in Christ, we can show each other grace and peace. We can give people the grace that they do not deserve, giving things that, oh, they don't deserve at all. We, when we, see, we can extend a relationship of peace to people that we may not otherwise give the time of day because God did that for us. Therefore, we can do that to each other. This is the work of God as we follow him. So that's a small snapshot of who we are as a church. We are a localized group who are saved and called to be holy. We are part of a larger group defined by those who are worshipers of God. We are bearers of grace and peace. Paul is going to go on and ask the Corinthians and us, does our practice line up with who we are? We say we are followers of Jesus Christ. We say that we are part of his church, but do we live that way? If our practice does not line up with who we are, we are to draw a line in the sand and say, God, sanctify me, make me holy, so they can stop being a hypocrite and start reflecting you. The truth is anyone can be sanctified. Anyone can cross that line and be changed by Jesus Christ. Once a month, we come together and we celebrate the work of Christ in our life. We celebrate his salvation, we celebrate his sanctification through taking communion together. Paul writes in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, so we'll get there. He said, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves." We as a church practice what's called open communion, which means that anyone who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ is welcome to join us. Anyone is, whether it's the first time you're here or you've been here all your life. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, 
You're not trusting in your works, your church attendance, your communion, your confirmation, your family's faith, nothing. You have placed your faith solely in Jesus Christ alone. You are welcome to join us and take communion and celebrate him. Anyone can take it. If you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, we ask that you allow the elements to pass by because they are the gifts of God for the people of God. We're not doing this to judge you. We're doing this to keep the table pure and for your own safety and sake so that you won't be a hypocrite. I encourage you today to place your faith in Jesus Christ and communion can be that first step as being a follower. And Please let someone know what you've done so we can talk about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ and live that way. We as a church do not believe there's anything special in these elements. They are just crackers and juice. They do not change into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. They do not save us. They do not make us more holy. They're just things. But the things we do to remember him. Because God knows that we are humans who forget easy. And we need physical things to remind us what he has done. So we eat the cracker and remind, reminded how Christ's body is broken as the cracker breaks in our mouth. We drink the juice and the bitterness of it, though this is kind of sweet, the bitterness of it reminds us of Jesus' blood that was spilled. We need that physical reminder to remind us of the cost of our salvation. When we take the bread and we take the juice, we each take a piece and we hold on to it. And we wait till everyone's served and we eat it together, commemorating that we want to be unified in Jesus Christ. We take the cup and we hold it till everyone's served and we drink it together because we want to be unified in Jesus Christ. Jesus prayed in John 17 that those who believe in his name would be one, even as he and the Father are one. Therefore, we pursue that unity. That's one reason why we take some time to pray before we take communion, asking God if there's a way that we have lived against him, confessing that, and asking him to help us change, to be sanctified, to be holy. We also pray and ask if there's anything, any division between us and a brother and sister in Christ. And if he reveals something, we promise to make it right. And we eat and drink a promise that we'll make it right this week. Every month I say this and every month I mean it. I'm grateful for the grace of God. Because if all of us were honest, we could not take communion because we're human. But God gives us his grace. And when we stray along the path, he kicks us back on it, holds us by the hand and says, follow me in truth and in holiness. And he gives us that strength to do it. So will you pray with me? Lord, I am so grateful for your grace that not only do you, did you save us, sending your son Jesus Christ to die for us while we were still sinners, your enemies, running in the opposite direction, but after salvation, you have the grace to call us back to yourself, to give us assurance of salvation that is not of our works, but is you alone, to hold us in your hand and nothing can remove us from it and to remind us that because of your grace, we should not sin. May it never be. Lord,
as your church, you know the sins that we are easily drawn to. We easily break community and have divisions and barriers. We easily take offense and gossip and talk behind each other's back. Lord, forgive us of that and teach us as your people what it means to be unified, a family, what it means to invite other people into our family and to accept everyone who comes in with a smile and love. Lord, teach us that truth. Teach us that practice that we might reflect you. And today, Lord, as we celebrate your salvation and our sanctification, Lord, continue your work in our life and keep that celebration going. Thanks, Father. Amen. Could I ask John and Tim to come and help distribute the elements? The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. in the plastic cups are gluten-free. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, broken, that we might have a personal relationship with him. Celebrating, let us eat it together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me.
the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ spilt that we might be made holy even as he is holy. Celebrating, let us drink it together.